This morning, I want to to start another phase of our series on the Holy Spirit. The previous weeks, we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to start moving into the gifts of the Spirit, which is another dimension of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you up front, this is probably the most uh, challenging series of messages that I'm ever going to speak. Because the Holy Spirit is so encompassing and so large and so big I feel so inadequate to speak on his behalf so pray with me and pray for me that the Lord will just give me the words to speak so that we can properly introduce and teach on the gifts of the Spirit based upon his provision for us so let me say a couple things as I go first of all I want you to know that as we teach and as we preach here that As we read the Word of God, we are just simply reading the Scripture. I take no blame nor credit for what it says. I didn't write it. I'm strictly reading it and trying to apply it. So if there becomes a problem with the Scripture, don't look at a man, me or anyone else, and criticize the man for what the Scripture says. It's God's holy word. He is the author. He wrote it, and he will stand with it. What I will also say today is that we as a church, corporately, we are not the same as the early church was when they began. So today, my emphasis today is talking about what was the early church experience with the Holy Spirit. What did they get from the Holy Spirit? What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit in them? I pray that the Lord will give us the insights as to what the Holy Church, what the early church experienced and how we can attain and glean and gain what they had because it's all God's idea, first of all. God puts things in motion. He says things in his word that he wants us to abide by. And it doesn't make any difference if we are part of the first year the church was involved or created or evolving or we are in 2015, 2,000 years later. It's still the same word of God. And it doesn't change. And his his meaning of the word doesn't change, even though we appear to be more enlightened and we're more technologically advanced. That doesn't mean anything to God's word. God's word is still the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, it's up to us to glean out what God wanted for his early church. And what then can we be like? How can we glean from that? And how can we experience what they experienced? Let me say also that we'll prove this out as we move on here, but let me make the statements that it was the norm It was the norm in the early church for Christians to have two experiences with the Holy Spirit. Number one, they got saved. Number one, the Holy Spirit filled them through salvation. And then number two, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues and they exercised the gift of the Spirit. It was the normal thing that happened then. They got saved They got water baptized, and they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that was the normal way of life in the early church. Now, I can say today that that's not the norm. 
the norm in our society today is that we get saved. And let me just say, I am not critical. I am not judging. I am not putting one thing over the other. I'm not putting one church over another. I'm not putting one denomination over another. I don't, don't let the devil try to take you down that path. All I'm clearly saying is that when people in the early church got saved, they went immediately the Holy Spirit's second experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, gifts of knowledge, gifts of, of, of wisdom, healing, um, and all the other gifts of the Spirit just operated in the gifts of the church. And it's not that way today. Things have changed. I did some research on this, and I came across this study. In a 10-nation study of the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement, the Washington, D.C.-based Washington, Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life found that in six of the countries studied, at least 40% of Pentecostals said they never speak in tongues. In the U.S., 49% of Pentecostals reported they do not speak in tongues. Foursquare President Jack W. Hayford said, no matter where theologians fall on the initial evidence debate, if tongues is not practiced, there is no reason to label the movement Pentecostal. Hayford discusses glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, in his book, The Beauty of Spiritual Language, and says many Pentecostals don't realize the practical value of tongues, which he said includes enablement beyond our own capacity in prayer and worship and the internal building up of the soul because their pastors aren't addressing the topic. We have backed away from the Holy Spirit. We've backed away from speaking in tongues. We've backed away from the gifts of spirit because it is confrontational, because it brings a fear factor in our hearts and our lives. So therefore, it's just easier not to speak about it. And can I tell you, it would be easier for me not to speak about it in a Pentecostal church. I am in an Assemblies of God church. I am an Assemblies of God pastor. We are a Pentecostal denomination. We've always been that way. And I will tell you, the enemy still brings the fear to talk about it. Can I just be totally honest with you here? Can I take away the veil of plasticness of me? I am afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say that respectfully. I say that fearfully, like, I'm a, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of understanding what he can do in our hearts and lives. He is our friend, first of all. And he is a person. And he wants to be every day involved in my life and every day involved in your life. What we need to do is open up our hearts and hands and receive him. And he will be in our hearts and our lives if we will just allow him to work and not be afraid of him. According to the Assemblies of God's statement on spiritual gifts, we believe everything the Bible says about spiritual gifts shows that they are still needed today. They are part of what God has designed and appointed the church for, just as he has set the various parts of the human body in their place to fulfill their proper function. This means the gifts are intended for the entire church age. Not until Christ comes again and restores this earth to a perfect state will they no longer be needed. Now our knowledge is imperfect and our gifts partial, but when Jesus comes again, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2. Historians tell us that spiritual gifts were important for the rapid growth of the early church. These gifts persisted into the third century after Christ and then gradually died out. 
From time to time, revivals brought restoration of some of the spiritual gifts, but they were largely neglected by the church as a whole until the Pentecostal revival at the beginning of the 20th century. This revival has been instrumental in bringing about one of the greatest advances of the gospel ever known. The gifts of the Spirit wonderfully distinguish Christianity from all other religions. So can I just say that the Holy Spirit is for you and me today? God wants nothing more than for you and I to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in full manifestation, not in part, but in completeness. Now, why do you think we as a church struggle on this point? Why do you think there's such a battleground here? If God wants it for you and me, if it is his intentional purpose that we experience it, why is there such a battle? Well, let me try to bring some why this might happen. Understand that the devil was very much a part of the death of Christ. Agreed? That was the devil's plan to kill Jesus. That was his plan from, all of, from the very beginning of time was to stop the seed that was coming, that was going to then ultimately give Satan his ultimate fate. And so his battle always was to kill Christ. And so come crucifixion day, he won. The devil killed Christ, right? But then three days later, what happened? Christ arose. Christ got up. And the devil was put back on his heels. Okay, now, in a matter of time here, in a few days, 40 days, Jesus was on earth, and then a few days later, uh, he promises the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit falls on the new church, and the day of Pentecost comes, and all of a sudden, power is unleashed, power that the devil has never seen before. Prior to that time, the Holy Spirit wasn't able to roam the earth and do the things that he was allowed to do after, until after Christ ascended. The Holy Spirit was held in check. Jesus dies. He, raises, he rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He, he goes up to the Father, and from there he releases the power of the Holy Spirit, and the devil doesn't have a clue what to do. So therefore, he brings all kinds of of battle now because if the Holy Spirit truly has his way in the lives of believers, the devil has no victory at all. In the life of a spirit-filled believer, the devil is conquered. He has no authority. But yet, the devil rises up today. And you don't think that when this movement was happening that the Holy Spirit was falling on this church and thousands were getting saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and everybody was speaking in tongues. You don't think that that got the devil's attention and you don't think that he tried to figure this out? Remember, he's not omniscient. He's not God's equal. He is a created being and he will never be God's equal. So when he saw all this happening, he didn't know what to do about it. He was set back on his heels and therefore the Holy Spirit had a great advantage this, the advantage of surprise came and the devil didn't know really what to do so the Holy Spirit got a good foothold in the early church alright well then fast forward a few years and I don't want to give the devil too much credit or too much glory but the devil is effectively and, and he works in the lives of people and he developed strategies so over 2,000 years of seeing first of all seeing the Holy Spirit write scripture seeing the Holy Spirit move in the lives of people the Holy Spirit 
is active and moving, and the, and the devil then comes against the strategy. And he says, I've got to stop it. Somehow I've got to stop it. And he can't stop the Holy Spirit, so what he does is he focuses on people. He focuses on you and I, and he focuses on all those other people that don't know how to receive it, and he puts a fear in them, and he comes and he brings deception, and he brings all kinds of false teachings about it, and he does everything he can to keep people from operating and moving in the gifts of the Spirit because that's the only way he can stop it. He can't stop it by just stopping the Holy Spirit because he can't control the Holy Spirit, but he can stop it from happening in my life because if I give him control... Remember, we are the agents of choice. It happens in me and happens in you. So if I get this, this fear of the Holy Spirit is going to make me do weird things or the Holy Spirit's going to take control of my life and the devil brings all kinds of false talk. And when we believe that, what happens to the power of the Holy Spirit? It goes away. It doesn't exist in our lives because we've allowed fear to take control. What we're to do is in told in Proverbs chapter 2 that as followers of Christ, we are to turn your ear to wisdom, applying our hearts to understanding. We are to call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and we are to search for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. Then we will understand the fear of the Lord and find a knowledge of God. When we will understand that we have a role and we have a responsibility to seek the Holy Spirit, seek His power, invite Him in, then we'll begin to understand and accept the fear and the righteousness of God, and we can begin to walk that way. So searching for the wisdom of God is highly valued in the kingdom of God. God fills those who are searching. Amen? If I'm lazy, if I'm complacent, if, I'm allowed to, if I've allowed the devil to, to rob me of my spiritual hunger, I will stay spiritually depleted. I will not rise above my circumstances in life if I don't invite and accept the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. It is my choice. It is my, it is my criteria that I have to allow the Holy Spirit to move and operate at his fullness or I can stop it. It's just that simple. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to come where he's not wanted. He's not going to come where he's not invited. Therefore, we have to be taught that there is a choice for us to make. We can either receive him or we can reject him. We're studying on Wednesday nights a book of Galatians, and I invite you all to come into our Wednesday night studies because they're very good, and we're getting a lot of dialogue in them. We're talking about Galatians, and chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 6 and 7, Paul, he says this. He says, I am astonished that you, the churches in Galatia, are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. If it's a different gospel, it's not a gospel. There's one good news, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. And if the devil perverts it in any, any way, shape, or form, it is no longer the good news, it is no longer the gospel. But yet, he says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, Paul had established the churches in Galatia and left them in good order. And the devil came in, relatively quickly and started bringing some false teaching and some Judaizers and some tried to bring in some extra man-made laws 
to place on top of the people. So that was his immediate struggle. The immediate strategy for the devil was to bring in what he knew, and that is the Old Testament law, to say, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to follow the Old Testament law to the point knowing that we can't follow that. The law does not save. The law just brings bondage. So that was his strategy then. Now, fast forward 2,000 years, we're talking about now how he is so effective in battling the Holy Spirit, he's had all those years in advance from then to continue to give us confusion, continue to pervert the gospel, to continue to twist it, continue to give it a, a sense of fear and undoing in our hearts and lives. So um, that it's important that we understand why we have lost, why the church has lost the power that God gave it initially and the power that God wants to have it. We have, we're against the foe. Now, let's go back. Let's go back, and first of all, let's talk about what was the normal. I've said, a con I made a statement that the normal in the church was people saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Let's go back and understand where this all came from. Who established this? How did it get established? Well, we go back and look, we look in the book of John, chapter 14. Jesus is speaking here. And he's prophetically speaking to his disciples. Beginning at verse 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commands. And in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, or a counselor, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is prophetically speaking to the disciples here, of the sending of the Holy Spirit to replace the ministry of Jesus. Now remember, this is all God's idea. This is his plan. This is the plan of God to give the people, to give you and I the ability to uh, conquer life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what is the role of the Spirit? We said in that passage that he's an advocate or a helper. What is an advocate? What is a counselor? According to the Greek word, it is parakletos, and it means intercessor, helper, one who encourages and comforts, one who speaks in defense. So the role of the Holy Spirit is to be our counselor and our intercessor, and he brings comfort in our hard times, and he's the one who speaks on, on our behalf. That got me thinking a little bit. Who does he speak to in our defense? Who does he speak to in our defense? Who is the Holy Spirit speaking to? Well, that's a good question. Because I tell you, sometimes we, I shouldn't say sometimes, I would say most of the time, we are our own worst enemy. There is a spirit of man in me, and there is a spirit of the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God. If I'm a Christian man, I have the Spirit of God living in me, but I still have a spirit of flesh. So when the Holy Spirit comes as a defender, who is he defending me against? Well, can I say I believe he's defending, against, he's defending me against myself? Because he comes in as an advocate. He comes in as a counselor. He comes as a defender against my own flesh because my own flesh still wants to rise up and take control. And what the Holy Spirit is saying, no, Mike, you're not, you cannot be in control. If you're going to be a person saved, redeemed, washed in the blood, you no longer are your own. You are, no, you are bought at it by a price. 
And that price was by Jesus. And now I've come to, to, get, to be his advocate. I've come to speak on his defense against yourself so that now I want you to place Jesus at the center of your life. And I'm the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be that convicting agent of this world now, and I'm going to defend against your own self for your own good. And when I fight against that, then I'm fighting against the Holy Spirit. We talked earlier in our service, who wants to be on the winning side? We all do. Well, the quickest way to win is to give up and allow the Holy Spirit to do what he can do best, and that is to be our advocate. So the Holy Spirit now is taking on a different role than the role that Jesus had. When Jesus was on earth, he was a man. He was limited by man's governing principles called gravity and one place at one time, and all of the things that you're, you and I are limited by, Jesus was under the same limitation. Jesus came with a, with a purpose to be our Savior. Jesus came to live a perfect life, to die a martyr's death, and to bring me salvation. And now that was his purpose. Now he says, I have to go to the Father, and when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit... And the Holy Spirit now comes with a different purpose. He's not coming to be our Savior. Jesus always was our Savior. He already did that. So now the Holy Spirit comes with a different purpose. The Holy Spirit comes to be our counselor, our advocate. He comes to be our convictor. He comes to be our helper. He comes to be our comforter. He comes to be the one that leads us to Jesus, who then Jesus leads us to the Father. He comes to complete the cycle. He comes to be the oil of the machine. He comes to be the enabler of who we are. If I don't allow the Holy Spirit to enable me, if I don't allow the Holy Spirit's power and influence to be in my life, then I'm limiting my ability to live for Jesus because I must have the power of the Holy Spirit in me if I'm going to be pleasing to the Father. I can't be pleasing in my own self. I must depend upon Him. So there's the only thing that limits the Holy Spirit, the only limiter of the Holy Spirit in this world is man itself. I am a limiter of the Holy Spirit. If I don't allow him to move and, 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 and have complete control of my life, then I am the, I'm the governor here. I'm, I'm the choker here. I'm the one that limits the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so my challenge for me and for you is to learn how to let go, how to release, how to open up that channel and say, Holy Spirit, I give in. I don't want to fight you anymore. I don't want to have a competitive battle with you anymore. I want you to have complete control and complete authority in my life, and I want you to be on the throne. And I clearly want you to be the center point of my life. The Holy Spirit is the power, and he's the influence. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 in the Amplified Bible, it says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit can say ever, ever say, Jesus be cursed, and no one really can say, Jesus is my Lord, except by and under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. I can't declare God is my Lord until the Holy Spirit has residence clearly in my life. So again, what was normal, the normal role of the Holy Spirit in the church was a very definitive role of the, in the life of every believer because they allowed him to work. They weren't deceived yet. Now, they still weren't perfect. There was a lot of bad stuff in the early church. There was a lot of immorality. You read the, you read the scripture, Paul talks a lot about that. But the Holy Spirit still had a purpose. Now, let me ask the question. 
When does the Holy Spirit take up residence in the life of a person? When does the Holy Spirit take up residence in the life of the person? Well, let's go back to Scripture. Let's find out what, when, when this happened. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he's hanging on the cross. Jesus is being crucified. His, some of his last words. He gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. At that moment, Jesus gave up his spirit and then the Holy Spirit is released because God tore the curtain. The curtain was separating men from the presence of God. God tore this curtain top to bottom, symbolically saying the Holy Spirit is released. The Holy Spirit is released. Jesus prophesied to his disciples before he died. He said this in John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no, more, no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And then Jesus goes on to give a very... Uh, accurate description of the role of the Holy Spirit. He says in, in verse 12, same chapter, John 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So here Jesus is explaining to the disciples that I must die. He must die. He must ascend into heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come and now become the active agent on earth. So now, the Holy Spirit is upon earth. Now, when does he become part of my life? When does he become part of your life? Does the Holy Spirit reside in all men or just believers? James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, if one is an enemy, I think it's pretty safe to say the Holy Spirit isn't living in that person. I think it's a pretty safe bet that a person that is, that is choosing, choosing to reject God is not, does not have the Holy Spirit resident in their life. So then when does the Holy Spirit enter in the life of a person if he didn't exist in him from birth? There comes a point in time where a man allows the Holy Spirit to enter him. When does that happen? Jesus told this to Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Verse 5, Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So there must be a transformation. There must be a, a, be a time when the Holy Spirit takes residence in the life of the new believer. Let's talk about the disciples for a minute. When did they accept, when did the Holy Spirit enter the life of the disciples? We see the moment that the disciples had their first experience with the Holy Spirit was prior to Pentecost. John chapter 20, 
Jesus now is getting ready to be a, 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 getting ready to ascend into the heavens. He says again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was evident in the disciples' life. That was their moment of salvation. Prior to that time, they truly weren't saved because Jesus hadn't been glorified yet. They were still living under the Old Testament, even though Jesus was alive. When Jesus died, Jesus had died now. He had already paid the price of their sin, and he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit at their point of salvation. That really, truly was the beginning of the church. We often think that Pentecost was the beginning of the church, but in all honesty, that was the beginning of the church, beginning with 12 men. Because the beginning of the church comes with salvation, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure that we, distinct, that we have a distinction here. There is two separate acts. There is the salvation experience where we receive the Holy Spirit and He indwells within us. And then there is a second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes later. So that was really the day. So that's when the Holy Spirit entered into the life of the disciples. But there's more than that. There's more to the depth and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. This is where I believe the church today has a major disconnect with the early church. I think this is where we kind of stumble. We want that salvation experience, and we'll be, ready to, we'll be willing to receive that. But when it comes to the second experience of the Holy Spirit, that's where the devil will stop us. That's where the devil gets in the mix. That's where he throws up all kinds of confusion, all kinds of fears, because it's when I get that second level of experience. This is not my idea. It's not the Assemblies of God's idea. It's not the Church of God in Christ idea. It's not the Church of God. It's not the Four Square idea. It's no denominational idea. This is the Word of God, that when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, He endues you with power. It's a new power. It is an additional power. It is, it is a second experience. Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 48, 53, you are, the witness, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus is telling his disciples who already have the Holy Spirit in them, He's saying, now I have another experience coming for you. The Father wants to send his Holy Spirit to you. Stay in the city and wait. Tarry until the day of Pentecost comes. Verse 50, when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Do you know why we know the Holy Spirit was in their life? Because they had great joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit was in their life already, and they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet. They were saved. They were eternally saved, and they knew it, and the joy of the Lord was in their life. They were a changed group of people because they had been born again. So what really happened on the day of Pentecost then? What's the point of the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 1. 
verse 12 through 15. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of, the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. These were 120 saved people. They had Jesus in their life. The Holy Spirit was in their life. The Holy Spirit cannot baptize that which is not saved. You must have the first experience first. You must have Jesus in your living in your life first before you can experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It has to come in that order. So here we have these 120 plus people waiting in the upper room to receive the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, to be baptized with fire and power and to be endued with power from the Holy Ghost on high. Acts chapter 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because it was promised to them. Because Jesus promised to them earlier that they would go, and the Father promised that they would send a power that would enclose them and, and give them power from on high. These passages are all describing the second experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I today... If you are saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. No question about it. The Holy Spirit's baptism is not an evidence of your salvation. You're already saved. You're going to heaven. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven. Let me just tell you that. I don't want to put anybody, I don't want you to think that you have to have anything to go to heaven besides Jesus Christ asking, asking him to in your heart and your life and believing for that and now accepting his sacrifice. You are saved. The norm of the early church was they went beyond that because they wanted the power of the Holy Spirit to live in their life. And that's where we're at today. Kenneth Hagin, in his book, The Holy Spirit and His Gifts, makes this statement as I close up here. There's more to receive of the Holy Spirit after the new birth. And he says this, If the disciples had heard some of these modern-day theologians and preachers who say that a believer receives all of the Holy Spirit at the new birth or their moment of salvation, then, it is, then the disciples never would have gone to wait in the upper room for the promise of the Holy Spirit and the endowment of power from on high. They would have said, Jesus breathed on me, and I received the Holy Ghost. That's all there is. Therefore, I've got the Holy Spirit, and there is all, that's all there is to get. That's all there is to a period, but as we will see, that isn't the case at all. Praise God. Praise God that they went, they obeyed Jesus. And they went and they tarried and they waited and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, as we speak over the next few weeks, we're going to speak more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was just kind of a, an introduction as to where is the Holy Spirit today? What are the two purposes of the Holy Spirit? There's so much more to talk about. There's so much more to talk about about the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and interpretations and the private prayer language of tongues. And there's so much, so much confusion there that I pray that we can teach and we can bring good discussion and understanding about the purpose of it and that we can develop a hunger for it and that we can see the need for it in our hearts and our lives and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will just give hunger in our body to receive all that he has for us that we're not happy with halfway that we want all of the Holy Spirit that we want all of his power 
that we want all of his authority, that we're not comfortable in a dark world playing against the forces of evil if we're not fully stacked up on the Holy Spirit. Now understand that the devil will give you many, many reasons not to, believe, not to be here or not to believe what's being said. Listen, folks. This is the most important time of history. I believe that. I believe that we are ramping up to the end days. And if we want to be a part of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the end days, we must be ready to receive it. We must be willing to put away our fear and our preconceived notions. We must be willing to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, fill me with all of the power that you have because we need it. If we're going to fight for our children, if we're going to fight for our lost loved ones, if we're going to fight and win against the enemy, we must have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And it is nothing to be afraid of. So I pray we have an openness to receive and that we have a hunger in our lives. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I just feel this calling that you have placed upon me to bring this word. And Lord, you know the intrepidation that is in my heart. You know the fear that I have in a righteous way, in a holy way to be able to speak about this, Lord. And I also pray, Father, that you would just come against the influence of the enemy in our hearts and lives, that we would stop resisting, stop looking at it for what we thought it was or the games that we've played with it. This is not a club. This is not a just to say I've done it. This is an experience of life, of living in the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the authority to conquer. And I pray, Jesus, for your deliverance. And I pray for your power. And I pray for your authority. And I pray, Jesus, that you will just give us the ability to receive what you've already poured out on us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.